Hello. Oh, hi, John. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. Are you in Hawaii or are you back home? I'm in Hawaii. Well, aloha then. Can I say that if I've never been to Hawaii? Am I allowed? Sure. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, we're two howlies just talking about Hawaii. You can say whatever you want. All right. Good. Yeah. You'll uh, you'll be able to hear all my morning doves and uh, and chickens and other birds. Weird, weird, weird birds. Yeah. What are the weird ones? Well, you know, they're weird, Dan. I don't, I I wouldn't be able to, to tell you. I can barely tell you the normal birds. Okay. Well. But they're, you know, they're here. They're making sounds. I'm not sure if my microphone is good at picking up distant birds. I hear hear something. I hear something back there in the background. Yeah. Yeah. But that's where I am. I'm here. In fact, today's, oh, excuse me. Um, Today's my last day. I'm flying home tonight on the the red eye, which is not a thing I typically choose. Yeah. That's how it broke down this time. So I'm just I'm 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 just gonna try and get my last little day of Hawaii here. A little bit of one more time in the water and one more time up the mountain, you know. How long are you how long were you there for? Um well, probably ten days to well, maybe a little longer. Twelve days. Yeah. Um you know, Uncle Jack is is uh, ninety five, I think, this year. Mm. Ninety four, ninety four, ninety five, uh, and you know, it's getting to be it's getting to be a um, little bit of a toil to be ninety five for him. Mm-hmm. I think he's starting to feel like it's, it's smaller and smaller things are becoming a pain in the ass. But he's still um, he still has his acuity and. And uh, he's still working on his book, so it's been good. But but uh, Marlo and her mom have been here the whole time. Oh, very nice. It is. Yes, it's been it's it's been wonderful, and it's been uh, it's been much. Uh, well, how would I describe it? It has focused Aloha for me or at least focused what aloha what i think aloha is or was okay uh by trying to get a hold of it again this year and having a much harder time getting to whatever that whatever that aloha place was so that's been interesting you know kind of like i knew that it was i knew that it was um tricky to kind of just just like you're not supposed to look for turtles, you're supposed to just go swimming and then the turtles will find you. You're talking about like ocean ocean turtles. Ocean turtles. Okay. It's also true about aloha. I do not think that you're supposed to look for it as much as you are supposed to just go swimming. Okay. Um, but anyway, that's all that's all just aloha talk, you know. As as two howlies do on a on a on a day mm-hmm. in a morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's it going in Texas? Is it summer there yet? Uh, you know, I, th- I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be, but it's got cold again. It's in the like forties. It'll be thirties tonight. It's raining. 
not what I wanted. It's not not very aloha here. No, no. I don't know if it ever is here. Many places. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't. You know, I have had some extremely aloha times in Austin. Have you? Uh, Yeah, I mean, at least Austin as I remember it uh, from fifteen years ago. Mm -hmm. There, there, there was there was at least a vibe there that was very much. um, There was a there was a chillness to the uh, the little social kind of um, bubble I was in down there that that uh, stood in real contrast contrast to Seattle in the sense of people just kind of living their lives and and uh, there didn't seem to be a lot, a lot of stress among the people I knew down in Austin but that might have changed in 15 years. Yeah, I mean, there's, it, more, there's more stress everywhere now, Dan. I was gonna say it, de- like Austin is definitely, um, I mean, as far as as far as places go, it's a relatively casual, chill kind of place. But it's not as chill or casual or laid back as it was, you know, when I moved here nine years ago. I wonder where all the chill went. I think the, I, I'm, I'm not just being one of those people who says things like this, but I think part of it is that, you know, we got a lot of, a lot of people, there are a lot of people moving here uh, very, very quickly. A lot of people moving in, in mass moving here. Mm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people are, you know, are from less chill places. Mm. And I think that there is, I think there is something to that. And I'm not, I'm not going to say all the people from California. I mean, a lot of the people that have moved here are from California, Mm -hmm. but I don't Mm -hmm. think it's just them. I think it's a lot of other people moving from a lot of other places. To California. Well, a lot of people moving to California. Yeah, they are. And you know, that's happened in, uh, in Maui here. Kihei Mm -hmm. used to be so chill and every day it's less chill. I just wonder where are the places that are getting more chill? Like are all the people who are leaving Southern Indiana <laughs> and moving to, I don't know where Austin, California, are they making Southern Indiana more chill? Cause I don't think of Southern Indiana as being, uh, well, that's weird because it is a little unchill there, but for different reasons, but you know the pace of life there, I think, is kind of slow and chill. I mean, I, there, what's unchill in Southern Indiana is certain attitudes. But uh, but that's not universal. You can always carve out a little corner of chill attitude somewhere. I'm not sure. Missouri is Missouri super chill right now? I think Kansas City sounds chill. I was talking to somebody the other day because. Uh, we uh, we had a meetup of people from um, the internet when uh, the Western State Hurricanes played in Seattle. A lot of people came from all around, and we had a little gathering, and uh, you know, talking to people that had come from far and wide. Mm-hmm. Young young man from Perth, mm-hmm. uh, a woman from uh, Kansas City. Yeah, there, there. Sang its praises. A handful Perth, of and from uh, from Perth to San, uh, to Kansas City, Dan. I know. No, I mean, it's, it's two, impressive. Of the, two of the great cities of the world. 
I was going to say that I have a handful of emails from people oh. who have recently been in attendance of the things you're talking about now for mm. our uh, for our, our supporter show, the show that we do after this show. So that's wonderful. We, I can't you know, wait to hear from them. A lot of feedback from them. Uh, uh, so many people saying they saw the Western State Hurricane Show, or they have the vinyl, or other things like that. So, yeah, talk about all that. Well, do you want to do you want to tease them? Do you want to tease one out? Is there I, one that you can read in the reg regular show? That I don't. To be honest, or you want to save them, John? I don't think those are the people who don't support deserve to hear it. To be honest, mm. I mean, I didn't say you're, that. I didn't say you're that. You're such a mean dad. You're such I've a never stern said that. dad. You're a strict dad. Yeah. Really a strict dad. I just had a little sip of coffee, the first one of the day. I'm just waking up here because it's um, our t the t time difference between Texas and here is, is it starts to get pretty wide. Right? It's I'm four, four hours, hours, right? Yeah. Four hours behind you, so. And so what is it there? It's one. So you're one like after here. lunch and I'm, and I'm, uh, I mean, honestly, nine in the morning is not that early for most people, but. Don't they have the co really great coffee there? Like all the all the awesome coffee comes from Hawaii. Don't they have the coffee that the animal eats and poops and you use that? Isn't that there? That civet coffee is from Southeast Asia, but they do have wonderful coffee here. And, you know, when I was growing up uh, in Alaska, the coffee from Hawaii was the coffee. You know, that was the stuff that you, if you, yeah. were, a, if you were a real player, you were drinking Kona coffee and um, in the Starbucks years, that whole Hawaiian coffee thing kind of just faded. I don't, I don't hear people in Seattle talk about Hawaiian coffee as much as I do Ethiopian coffee or Central American coffee. And I think pro part of it's probably that the coffee plantations are gone from Hawaii. Ah. But there's still wonderful coffee here. Uh, let, me, let me be the first to sing its praises. Hmm. Mm. Oh, delicious coffee. But yeah, I, I, I'm, um, I'm contemplating the, the fact that, you know, uncle Jack may not come next year. Who knows? Yeah. He may, he may come next year. He may come for the next 10 years, but it's possible that he won't. And I've never taken this trip for granted, for sure. It's always been, um, I've always recognized that it's an astonishing opportunity or, you know, just a wonderful gift to be able to come here because I couldn't afford to do this. I Definitely over the last 10 years, I wouldn't have been able to afford to. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like on the threshold of, uh, being able to consider like next year, if uncle Jack doesn't come, will I want to come badly enough that, you know, I'll Airbnb a place and come maybe for the, the first time, like really, really intentionally and not, not because there's a, there's so much that I do, Dan, that's like, Oh, that's cool. Sure. I'll do that. Mm -hmm. As, as opposed to like, I am going to make it. Uh, I'm going to make a point to do that, and um, I've got a tradition now coming here in in February. I wonder if when he stops, whether that tradition will mean enough to me that 
it will end up being the first thing that I start to say, this is what I do. You know, this is, this isn't something that I do because there's a chance to do it. This is actually something I'm going to make sure that I do. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a lot going on this spring. I got asked to go to Alaska by uh, the Rasmussen Foundation, which is kind of the, the big grant um, awarding foundation in Alaska. Hmm. And they, you know, they give like pretty big grants to artists and people working in a lot of different fields up there. And I got asked to come and be one of the um, like artists that helps decide who gets the grants. I'm not exactly sure what the name of that job is, but you know, to sit with a small panel of other people and review the grant applications of whatever, a hundred people and pick the eight of them that are going to get 20, 30 grand uh-huh. to work on their art. And, you know, they're flying me up to Alaska and putting me up for a week to That's go nice. through this whole thing. And it's wonderful. And it's, it's, um, it's maybe the, I'm trying to think, but I, it, I think it's the first time I've ever gone back to Alaska where I was doing it for work. And even though it's a, you know, I'm not getting paid to do it. It's still like within the terms of what I consider my work. On my high school reunion, I, my 20 year high school reunion, mm-hmm. I, I put together a show at a, like a in-store at the cool record store in Anchorage because I had a, a new album out and I thought, Oh, wouldn't that be cool if I like, if I played while I was there and I went and did a couple of radio interviews at the college station, cool indie station. And I played an in-store, you know, a lightly attended in-store at a record store all as a kind of thing to do around my 20 year and my 20 year high school anniversary. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I kind of drummed that up. This thing with the Rasmussen foundation is the first time that it feels like, it feels like I wouldn't be up in Alaska otherwise at this time, except to go do this thing. Right. And you know, traveling somewhere where you have a purpose where you're there for work is a, is it's a milestone for me. It always, it always feels like that. You know, I've never been to Australia. I've right. never been to Japan right? because both places I've, I've hoped that I would get called there. I would have, I would go there because, because I had to, because of work and not, not because I, uh, elected to go as a tourist or a vacationer. So that's kind of a neat milestone to go yeah. back to Alaska that way. But the but the thing I'm very excited about this spring is that I got accepted into the Army War College program. Oh, okay. That I okay. Applied to a couple of years ago. Do you yes, remember that? Yes, I do remember that. Good and for I was you. Very Congratulations. When did you hear about the acceptance into that? Oh gosh, about a week ago, 10 days ago. Oh, okay. Um, a nice little send off for your uh, trip to Hawaii, huh? 
Yeah, it's it's you know that that week before I left for Hawaii was just an extraordinary week. The Western State Hurricanes experience was overwhelmingly positive. You know, there the the week of like intense rehearsals with the band was nerve wracking because that music was a lot harder to remember than I expected it to be. And, but it was, it was nerve wracking, but it was great. And then the shows were great and the album came out and it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and it, and it's vinyl, right? It's vinyl. It sounds great. It's an album. And all the things, you know, it going up on Spotify, but now I'm going to, I'm going to release it on Bandcamp in another day or so. And that's going to be great. And the feedback from everyone was great. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't a single voice that said, oh, that wasn't very good. You know, everybody loved it. We played on KEXP and it went well. I had a meetup, like I said before, of people that, that go to the Facebook group gary's van and mm-hmm. i think gary's van yeah, there's has emails dis- in there about the gary's van thing as well yeah. there's a discord now i think for people that don't like facebook because there there's gary's van is becoming a becoming a multi-headed hydra yeah anyway the the whole thing just it was like the culmination of a lot of work and all of that work was really validating and then it all worked it all happened and and um, and was great. You know, there wasn't a single thing to latch onto and say, well, that was, that part of it was a bummer or, oh, I read one bad review and it, and it, you know, it erased 50 good reviews. You know, there wasn't even one bad review to fixate on. It was just, and personally for me, like, just great mm-hmm. all the way through. And and uh, and then I heard I was going to the war college, and uh, and then I went to Hawaii. I mean, what could be better than all that? Well, it's it's pretty, you know, it's pretty amazing. And um, I guess from a materialist standpoint, there isn't very much that could be better, you know, like like um, in the material world, uh, everything clicked. Also, two days ago, three days ago, uh-huh. there was a big article about me in the Wall Street Journal. Really? That no one noticed. And I didn't promote. And I didn't promote it because it is in the Wall Street Journal and it's talking about the my financial life. Um, a writer contacted me and said, you know, we want to do a profile on a podcaster uh, and what a, pi- a podcaster's financial situation is. Mm-hmm. And we want to give you free financial advice from the Wall Street Journal. Huh. And, you know, it's a it's a series they do. And they sent me a bunch. I think I probably told you about them. They sent me some to compare. And they were all these people that were like, I'm a potter. I live in Brooklyn and, you know, I want to make sure that my pottery, that being a potter is going to provide me with a good retirement. Game plan. A musician slash podcaster starts thinking about retirement. Right. 
Right. It's all about like, how do you put your financial life together? I can, of and course, the, cannot it, read the full story because I'm not a subscriber, but I will put it in the show subscribe. notes for those who are. Well, and I think, you know, I think I'm mentioning it. If this show comes out in a timely fashion, there might even still be print copies around. Yeah, um, it'll, it'll come out to, uh, today or tomorrow. We had a hard time finding it here in Hawaii, but but we found a copy. So I think it's out. I think, it, the, I think the published version is at least it was on the street. Um, I don't know when the, when our show will get, will come out, but anyway, it's a, you know, on, on one hand, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And normally I, something like that, you know, the expectation would be that you would publicize it. You'd go out to the internet and say, Hey, you guys look at this article about me in the wall street journal, but you know, it's about this tricky business of money that feels doubly embarrassing. You know, if it was an article, if it was a review of the Western state hurricanes in the wall street journal, I would have been, uh, I would have been out touting it. Um, but you know, this article is like, here's how much money I made last year and how much money I am trying to make next year and how much of that I spend on expenses and how much of that I have left over to save and house selling and all this. And to do the article, you know, was another kind of confirmation of how much has changed in the last year. Mm. And a lot of that, a direct result, there's just no other way to put it, a direct result of crowdfunding, right? stepping in and taking me from a person that just really felt like I was on the, on the razor's edge. I was working all the time and and not getting paid for it. And now all of a sudden, halfway through the year, I was getting paid for it. And it was, it was 100% because of this, this new method. And it, I have some friends that work at McClatchy, the newspaper group. And, you know, McClatchy is laying people off and shutting down. And I was talking to this friend of mine that used to be the editor of the Anchorage Daily News we're just reflecting on the fact that we still haven't come up with a way to fund things outside of advertising. You know, that's the only way Google makes money. It's the only way Facebook makes money. It's the only way Twitter makes money. It's the only thing that keeps podcasting afloat. Right. You know, it's the, like some for some fucked up reason, the only money there is in the world is uh, to, to pay for all these wonderful things is um, trying to like get you to buy oven cleaner. Mm-hmm. And all the other money, I don't know, I don't know what all the other money is doing. It's just moving around, moving from room to room. But every writer I know, every Every, um, I mean, you know, Hollywood is different, of course. They generate their own money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, musicians used to uh, at least be able to actually make a thing and sell it. But, you know, I realized I was completely dependent on advertising, and advertising just doesn't really work at the level I was operating. Um, but 
crowdfunding all of a sudden is, I mean, it's obviously not a new thing to have patrons, but this little kind of like every little patron type of model, it's just transformed my life in, in such a short amount of time. That's just, it's astonishing. And I, I can, uh, I have no idea whether I can sustain it, whether people eventually will say, I'm going to give my dollar to the McElroy brothers because because it, they're so irresistible. They're well, just you, like you would be it, surprised how much churn there is just in like in our Patreon for this show for the for supporting the show and getting the bonus content. Like it, you would kind of think like uh, you know oh we've got I don't know how many it is but let's just say it's a, it's five hundred people thousand people. You would think it's like a thousand people and like one or two drop off and one or two come, but it's not like, really. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of people who will be there. They'll be there for a little while and then they'll, they'll drop off and get out. So we're, although the, the patronage is increasing, it's, it's increasing, but there's also a lot of people who I, I feel like are, are leaving. And it's, I'm always curious about, you know, like when I generally decide to support somebody, um, I'll, I'll support them and, and I'll kind of stay there. You know what I mean? Like for me, that's like, I'm, 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 I'm there now. Now I'm there, I'm here, I'm doing this thing. And it's not, um, you know, like I'm not, I'm not there just for a, a few weeks or a month and I'm not, I mean, I'm not criticizing people who decide to do that. But um, it's just, it's just interesting because like, that's not how I do it. You know, like if I support someone, I support them for as long as I'm listening and, and maybe oh, even I, I beyond that. The, the, yeah. The whole idea I thought was that this was another eel, a voluntary eel that people attach to themselves where like basically, yeah, basically yeah. you would start doing it and then forget you were doing it. That's <laughs> the hope. That I mean, that's what, we, that's what we want. Just just pledge and then like it just becomes another tiny little, uh, yeah, tiny little remora stuck to the outside of your skin as you, as you um, swim through the waves. I would like to say thank you very much and tell you a little bit about feels. I am and have been on the CBD bandwagon for a while and CBD has completely changed my game on a lot of levels. Most people think of CBD as like, you see that flag when you're driving down the, the road and it's some junk at a gas station. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was a little skeptical about it. I'd had a brand of CBD that I've been using for years and it was great. I had no problems with it. So when Fields was coming on board as a sponsor, I, I thought, okay, I'll try it out. Let's see if it's as good. It's actually been better for me. I, I'm really, really impressed with Fields. It really is higher quality. And they care about it. You can even check and read on their site. They, they do independent testing of their CBD so that, to make sure that it is pure, to make sure that you're getting the amount of CBD that you think you're getting or that you're supposed to be getting. Those things are important. And, uh, and they, they go the extra mile to make sure that what you're getting is exactly what you think you're getting. Uh, so let me tell you about what CBD does. It, it helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. And it does it naturally. 
And uh, guess what? I've dealt with all those things and it has helped with all of those things. The thing I was the most surprised uh, that it helped me with is after I uh, am, I, I power lift and uh, I work out at the gym, you're always pulling something or tweaking something or messing something up. It's just like my, uh, my, uh, sports doctor says, if, if you're not a little bit hurt, you're not really living, right? So CBD really helps with that and feels is some of my favorite CBD ever. Basically, you put a few drops under your tongue and you will notice a difference usually within just a few minutes. They have a free CBD hotline and text message support. So that if you have questions about how much to take or what or what what your problems are and what kind you, what strength, they will just help you. It's really, really nice. And it works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high from this. Let me be clear. This is not the like THC full CBD that you're going to get in a weed shop. This is, there is, it doesn't have THC in it or it has whatever the absolute bare minimum they can, that's, that's in there from the hemp plant. This is not made from, uh, from the pot plant. It's made from the hemp plant. It's very different. So you don't get high from it. There's no hangover. There's no addiction. And, uh, and this is the cool part is the membership you join their community, you're going to get feels delivered to your door every month. You're going to save money on every order and you can pause it or cancel it at any time. Once you get, once you get on the bandwagon, like I am, the worst thing in the world is to say, oh man, I wasn't paying attention and now I'm down to the wire. I won't have enough for next week and I got to put in an order and now I got to pay rush shipping. You don't have to worry about any of that with the membership stuff that they have. It's really cool. And because you can pause it or cancel it, you're in full control. Uh, it's not like something where they're locking you in forever. You, you are in control. So I want you to feel as good as you can. And I think CBD is going to help you do it. Like I said, they can't pay me to say this stuff about CBD. They can't, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true, if it wasn't helping me. And it really has helped me. Uh, and maybe, maybe it'll help you become a member by going to feels F E A L S feels F E A L S feels.com slash roadwork. You will get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's crazy, but they want to do it. Whatever. If they want to do it, they can do it. Feels.com slash roadwork. Become a member. 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. And thanks very much to them for making my life better and supporting this program. But yeah, yeah. The the whole notion of it, you know, it's so new relative to, I guess, you know, how long I've been doing things. But anyway, so this article, like all of these things, Dan, this, this amazing experience putting out this album, and that's not even to get into the amazing experience of being able to go back and, and relive all those experiences and have, have a different result come out, which is to say the album was released but also, you know, I flew a couple of guys out um, in our opening band, the Nevada Bachelors, and they reunited, that band reunited, and relearned their songs from that time. And the Western State Hurricanes paid all their expenses and paid them all to, so that they earned a little bit of money. And so it was a thing that I was able to and it wasn't even like I wasn't being Machiavelli about it, right? Mm -hmm. It was just like, I want these guys to do this and this would be fun. And, you know, and they were like, we want to do it. And so it all worked. It wasn't a thing where at the end of the day, anybody got screwed. It wasn't a thing where anybody 
anybody had a bad time. Um, and so I've been, I've been texting with a guy in, you know, people like DM me into various different places and mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know why it's so, I don't know why certain people choose to DM you in Facebook and certain people choose to DM you in Twitter and certain people do it in Instagram. It's so funny that all of those messaging services, they really do end up getting used. People, people end up getting in different ways, sliding into your DMS, these different places. But I've, (laughs) I've been, I've been DMing with a guy. I, I, I talk to a lot of people who are struggling with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And, and I make it, you know, I make myself available because I think it's important. But um, I've been talking to a guy who is, who's really struggling with that material world versus spiritual world thing. Because in his material world, things are really going badly. And it's been, it's been emphasizing to me that, um, that, we talk about materialism in our culture as being a thing revolving around consumerism, right? Just you're, you're fascinated, fascinated with things. And it's, it's kind of implied when you say materialist that, that what you're saying is shallow, you know, somebody that just wants televisions or whatever, but materialism is, it's not, it's not just a, a, like a class or wealth status acquisition thing. It's a mentality. It's a way of, it's an approach to life. And a lot of times when we talk about being present, being here now, you know, that can, that can bleed over into a, a, this world, this mentality of like, what is the, what is the material world is the world what is happening in the the world of our flesh and blood and the things that we're touching like this is reality and there are we and there are a lot of attitudes that people carry that are you know just kind of intrinsically materialist the uh, uh you know the a lot of the fixation on um on justice in our contemporary society is in in a in a way an expression of materialism. Okay. Um, the idea that you know that it is the material wealth. Certainly, we want a more um, a, a fairer distribution of material things, but we lose sight of you know fixating on the material things or on material we lose sight of the fact that that's not the world really, you know, that money, money is fake and that we're actually living in a, and there, and I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to the program that are like, no, actually the material world is the world. But for me, like talking to an alcoholic that's struggling, for instance, and having them list all the things that are going wrong and tying that to whether or not, they can get sober, whether or not it's worth it even to get sober. Why even bother getting sober if everything's already gone to shit? All right. You know, and this person's writing me and like, well, you know, 
I'm losing my house. I'm losing my family. I'm losing my job. And I'm like, yeah. And it's crazy to say that your family is materialist, but they are in this sense. Like you cannot, and I say it all the time, right? If it was, if it was sufficient that losing your family was such a blow that it would force you to stop drinking, then there would be a lot fewer chronic alcoholics than there are because alcoholics lose their family every damn day and it doesn't stop them from drinking. Alcoholics lose their health. They drink themselves straight to death. Like they lose everything and it's not enough because it's a spiritual problem. It's not, it's not a material one. And in having that conversation with that guy, and this is a conversation I'm having with 15 people, but this, this precise one, you know, just happened recently. It, it caused me to reflect on the fact that all of these things that have happened recently, if I segregate them to the material world, when I think about it in terms of like, that was, that was, um, these were events. These are things that have happened. These are signposts. And each one of them, I should be able to line up and say like, look at these accomplishments, how proud I am of them, how successfully they, they went off. You know, each one of these things has gone off without, without a dark side, Mm -hmm. you know, I should be able to stack those and see in myself, feel in myself, uh, the production or the transformation, uh, like I should feel good, relaxed, proud, um, content, and to have gone through all of this just in, you know, and it's such a concentrated moment. Mm-hmm. The last four weeks, right? I mean, so much happened. And yet I feel myself internally, myself, sort of unchanged. I feel the same. And in those moments when I was on stage with the band, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm like absolutely flying, right? Just at yeah. peak efficiency. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, because I'm, I'm a performer that really, uh, puts it all out there, right? Like, um, it's been described as leaving it all on the stage. And that's, that's how I feel about it. You know, um, when I'm up there, I think whatever energy I have, I, why would I take any of it home tonight? You know, right. right. Like go, go all the way. And both nights, I mean, the first night I had to save a little bit cause I knew there was a second night, but the second night I didn't save anything. Um, just put it all out there. And that's a, that's an incredible feeling by itself, you know, to, um, to sing to the point where it's like, well, 
I can make it through one more song and then I would, uh, then I'm going to be unable to sing and to say like, I have, I have, uh, I have bounced around now and, and to the, to the point that I really, really don't have that much more. Um, and in the moment of that, it's, there's a kind of presence that, is bulletproof. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I was off the stage, I mean, not as soon I, I, I really, for the, for the hour or two after you get off stage, like you're still kind of bathed in a light, mm-hmm. but, but whatever that, whatever my spiritual malady is, this last month has really demonstrated that it is impenetrable to things happening in the world. There is no thing that I can do or have happened to me that is going to change my spiritual wavelength level, uh, like constant state. I'm still exactly as... um, nonplussed as as I was and probably as I would have been if all those things had gone wrong. If the Western State Hurricanes record release had been a disaster, if the album sounded terrible, if nobody liked it, I would have lots more bummers. But, but whatever my energy level is, whatever my spiritual level of contentment or feeling of belonging it's unaffected and that's a a pretty astonishing realization for me because and and I've had it a dozen times in my life the idea that if I just get this next thing and, and including if I just get sober if I just get in shape, if I just lose 20 pounds, if I just, if I just, if I just, we all at a certain age realize that all those, if I justs, you never get, you never cross a finish line, right? right? There's never one of those that actually like accomplishes what you, what you think or what you hope it's going to do. But to, to have it in such bold relief right now, it puts it into a, it puts it into a kind of like, uh, I guess it has foregrounded it. It's the file that's on the desk right now. Um, which is to say like, I want to be able to enjoy these things. And I want to do that now so much that I can't possibly go through another season. If I think about last year where I was and what I felt like I needed, and now I can sit here this year and have, and feel like I had, I've realized all those things, not only the things I thought I needed, but all these other gifts. And yet I'm sitting here more or less in the same frame of mind. Um, like what can I possibly hope for for next year 
in the material world that's going to make any difference to me. And the, the fact is there's nothing. So I have to find, I have to, like last year's Aloha journey has got to convert this year into a spiritual path. And God, I hate saying that because yeah. I just, ugh. <laughs> and as somebody that's been ostensibly on a spiritual path for 25 years to realize that I'm not on one. I haven't really been on one. I don't want to go on one. Right. I, I don't, I don't want to do any of those things. I don't want to, honestly, it's so excruciating to consider. Mm -hmm. It's so much harder than going to the gym, which is already really hard. <laughs> but to find, to seek guidance and to pursue a program to, uh, ugh, I don't, I don't relish it, but how can I sit here and, and, and to say that there's any other way forward? And I, and I have to say, like, I'm not depressed, mm -hmm. right? I did not come off of that stage. I did not come out of that record release. I didn't, you know, when I, when I got the message that I was admitted to the war college event, you know, I actually did like a fist pump in the air. <laughs> and part of, part of the problem was there's very few people I can share that with. I was right? going to, well, you just shared it with a lot of people, but I was going to say, I'm trying to imagine you doing that. That's um, like, that's a big thing. It doesn't happen very often where there's something that I feel is so exciting that, that I actually have like a, yes, you know, like a, um, I've been so excited to do it and it's not, it's not a big thing. You know, it's not like I've got awarded a presidential medal or something. There's a, a listener to our programs who is a, you know, an air force officer who teaches at the air force Academy and mm -hmm. at the war college who invited me to apply. Right. He's like, I want you to come to this, but you know, it's the government that has to decide. And I replied and was rejected. And a couple of years went by and I applied again. And this time I, I was accepted and I'm just, I, it, I, I, it's a fist pump, not because it's some great honor, but because I really want to do it. I really want to do it so much. My experience in the since since being King Neptune and, and since meeting several, uh, military officers that listened to these various podcasts that listened to Roadwork and Roderick on the Line a long time before I started doing Friendly Fire. Right. And then, especially when I was King Neptune, I met all those admirals. Like, the insight it's given me into the world, knowing officers who are, you know, at a sort of general staff level, um, it's just been a profound deepening in my understanding of politics and just kind of, I don't know, human endeavor. And I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to spend more time with military officers to understand how they think, to understand what the expectations are of them. 
and how we get into these situations in the world where right where we turn to military officers to solve problems for us and and they often are the ones that are like we are the wrong people to ask hmm. but and the response from us is often you're the only ones we're, you're the only ones we can think of it's so funny we i mean talking to these people and hearing from them that you know basically that when you ask the military to solve a humanitarian crisis like the their attitude is we are uh, our first idea is to shoot people and our second idea is to shoot people and so if you ask us to solve a problem we're going to find a way to solve it by shooting people right and you know that kind of, the understanding or the, rec- or the realization that there are military officers that are reflective or that reflective about their role in the world and yet also great officers boy it's been exciting for me but but all of these things there's got to be a way for me to because, uh, because like I say, I'm not depressed. I'm just in a, uh, in a place where I cannot go higher. There's a, there is compression on me. It's not depression. It's a, there's a limiter and it's got to be connected to a, um, disease of the spirit and believe me i know that you have recommendations i know that a lot of people have recommendations um you know it's i I do not live in a bubble right i know what i know what the opportunities are what the options are it's just that i don't want to i don't Mm -hmm. want to do those Mm -hmm. honestly i don't want to i don't want to meditate i don't want to do yoga i don't want to think about my yoni I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to make a list of all the people I've harmed. I don't want to read "Be Here Now" by Baba Ram Das. I have a couple of copies of it already. Thank you. I don't want to do the artist's way. Like I just want to be lazy and. Um, but I can't. I can't anymore. So, the, you know, there's nothing easier to put off until tomorrow than beginning a spiritual path. Like, it, it's, it is so easy to say, I'll do that later. And um, the meditation teacher that I had uh would often quote something where he would say that people have said or would say to him, Oh, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm, I can't meditate. I'm, I'm, I'm too stressed out to meditate, which is, you know, <laughs> saying I'm, I'm too sick to go to the doctor. It's the same, you know, the same thing, but I hear what you're saying. Like, it's super easy to put that off. It's super easy to not do that. Not want to do it. Ugh. Ugh, damn. Who wants Ugh. to do any of that crap? I don't want to do that crap, Dan. I know. But I have to, and it's it's the rare, I think maybe somewhat rare, 
um, I think a lot of us pursue that stuff as a component in like an overall project of self-care and general health and, um, and because you don't get presented to you in such bold relief, the contrast between what is happening in your material life and what is happening in your spiritual life. Mm -hmm. I think the tendency is to embark upon those things, you know, as sort of general self-improvement or, or, or rather a feeling that something's missing from life or, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, I have put myself into a situation here where the, where the emergency of it is, is really revealed because it is an emergency. If, if everything can go right for a period and, you know, and, uh, everything that went right in the last month is not just something where I won the lottery or I found a, you know, a wallet full of money. Like everything that went right in the last month is the result of work that I did for a year or two beforehand. Right. right? The Western right. state record. You're finally, was, you're, you're finally seeing these things come to fruition. It's yeah. not an overnight thing. It's, it's a multiple years thing. Yeah. Right. right. The, the, the crowdfunding thing, what we worked hard to, to, it's not just, it's not hard to put up a, uh, an, or to ask people. I mean, it is hard to ask people. It's not hard to put a thing up that says like, donate money. It's very hard to ask people, but more than that, it's hard to, over the course of time, I mean, it's just hard to think that you're worth it. It's hard to, it's hard to ask people because it's hard to come to the realization that, that you can do that without shame, you know, and it's hard to, um, it's hard to make a thing that's good enough to, to warrant right. feeling like you can ask. And it's hard. It was extremely hard to make that Western state record. It was hard to get all those people together and I'm not a good project manager. So like, so there were so many text threads where people were like, John, are you, hello? Like we've been talking about what's going to happen and you are not chiming in. And I'm like, ah, I hate replying to texts, but yeah. Okay. And then I would finally say like, all right, here's how it's going to go. You're going to do this and you're going to do that. And they'd be like, oh, thank God. And you know, and it's, it's a, it's a study in contrast of like who, how people like to communicate because there'd be 80, 80 texts between us and I wouldn't say a word. Right. And then finally I would say like, all right, here are the dates and times and here's the places and here's how it's going to, here's how the money's going to work and here's how the, it's going to roll. And it would be like, but it would take me those 80 texts to get to the point where I was like so frustrated that I would have an answer. But somehow in spite of that, you know, the other members of the Western state hurricanes have a lot of skills and they were really interested in this project and they really came through and, People helped, you know, people helped make it. It wasn't a thing that, this wasn't just a vanity project, right? This was a, a thing that was a gift to everybody that participated in it. And, and the work that they did to pull it off was a, was a kind of gift. You know, the, the, 
that each person had the ability to put hard work into it and right. and see it happen for themselves was like a gr- it's just a great experience and it's a and it was the result of a couple of years of work on it so none of this none of this success was was anything other than affirmation an affirmation of every of all of this other stuff, all the stuff that was like, oh, why am I doing this? Or, but I, you know, I never even asked those questions. I was never like, why am I doing this? It was just, it was just clear. It was mm-hmm. clear why mm-hmm. I was doing it. You felt you. It felt right, and it still feels right. Oh, I just don't know what the first. I mean, you know, the first step, I guess, for me has got to be that I, God damn, that I go to an AA meeting. When was the last one you went to? The last AA meeting I went to was, you know, I went to one last year here in Hawaii while I was here. Mm-hmm. I went to one. So like a year is what you're saying? No, I went to, I, I've gone to one or two in the last year back in Seattle. Um, there's a, there's a home group, you know, most AA meetings happen in, church basements, some sort of, you know, space that's where a a nonprofit, you know, gives you the keys to the coffee maker once a week. Mm -hmm. But there are, there are some freestanding buildings that are just AA halls. There aren't many, but you know, there are places that are AA spaces and there's one very close to where I live now. And, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of AA spaces. There are places where people work phone banks because there are numbers you can call if you're, if you're in the middle of a crisis, you know, kind of crisis hotlines, but uh-huh. AA related. Um, and so, you know, there, there's always a number you can call. And there are people staffing those spaces um, volunteers that, you know, kind of go down and answer phones for a few hours. And that's kind of fun. You know, you have a cup of coffee and there's three or four other people there and <clears throat> the phone rings. Um, and in the meantime, you're kind of talking with each other, but there's an AA hall down by where I live and I've been driving past it for a year and looking at it. And it's, and it's one that feels very much like pretty close to the street if you know what i'm saying yeah like it's it is not a it's not a luxurious place it's it's a place where um i think it within within uh within aa terms i think you would say that there's real work being done there and i drive past it and you know i'm 25 years sober but I look at that building and it's intimidating. Really? It's intimidating, be- not because, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to walk in there and feel immediately welcome. And it's not that I don't know all the songs, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because there are no songs. But in fact, there are a lot of songs. 
And it's not that, you know, it's not intimidating in that sense. It's intimidating because I drive past it and I know that it's kind of got to be a no bullshit environment in there. Yeah. Um, it's not a social place. And a lot of AA meetings, well-established ones, long-running ones, you know, they become social places. The people that are in there have been through a lot together. Uh, it, it, people end up having a lot of time, a lot of sober time, and they become, you know, if you're really working a program and you're sober for a long time, you become wise. And, you know, and it's a challenge that some meetings have to address where there's 50 people that are always there and they all know each other and they've all heard each other's stories. And so it becomes a kind of club. And those are intimidating meetings to go to because you waltz in or you walk in sometimes, you know, in dire straits. In fact, I went to a meeting like that this year. I went to, uh, it was on an afternoon and I was like kind of hitting the skids and, I was texting with somebody and they were like, oh yeah, you know, just, and I wasn't talking about anything like that. I was like, how's it going? Good. What's up? And they mentioned this meeting and I happened to be driving past it and I just swung into the parking lot and walked in and it was a convivial place, really nice people. They'd brought a lot of food, but it was really a thing where you walk in and people are talking to one another and you're like, Oh, everybody knows each other. And I, I'm welcome there. You know, any, any alcoholic would be welcome in that group. Right. But it's different for, it's different to understand that you're welcome. Um, but to, to feel like like you walked into somebody's clubhouse, but this place that's down by my house um, if it's a clubhouse, it's a it, it's a clubhouse of a very different kind, um, where people are where people are do not have luxury. They don't have the luxury to go to AA because it's fun, and it's where I drive past this place, and it's where I belong. Like it's not just where I belong because I have a lot of sober time and there's a lot of help I can give other people, but it's where I personally belong because frankly, I'm at that level in terms of my spiritual growth. I'm basically at the bottom. Like I'm starting and it's the craziest thing to think that you could be 25 years without drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And you feel like you're still just starting, right? Well, because throughout that entire time, throughout that entire 25 years, I have known and recognized that I was not really working the program. I was doing the thing where I was exerting a pretty strong willpower because, as you know, like I can set myself to an idea and make it real and I set myself to not being drunk and confirmed it and rationally confirmed it every day 
for 25 years. But all the stuff about staying sober that's part of a, a process of like learning to be because staying sober is one part of it. But being an alcoholic isn't just that you drink, <laughs> you know, a lot of people drink. It's not just that you take a drink and suddenly you're an alcoholic. There's something wrong with alcoholics and nobody knows what it is. Alcoholics don't know what it is. That's why there's all this prob this terminology problem. What the hell is a spiritual disease? What does that even mean? Sounds idiotic. But there's no other way to describe what the problem is. Yeah. To, to talk about alcoholism as a disease, everybody that says that understands that they don't know what that means. That those words sound crazy. But what else, how else can you describe it? That this person gets drunk all the time and loves it and is happily married, successful in their job, their kids love them, and they drink like that their whole lives. And when they retire, they sit with their wife and get drunk and are having a blast. Mm -hmm. And then this person over here, every time they get drunk, Every single time they get drunk, it ends up being a fucking clusterfuck and they screw up everything. They can't keep friendships or relationships going They're They lose their job. They're in trouble all the time. They wake up sick, you know, like what the fuck? It's not the booze that's doing it. The booze is a constant. And I mean, there are people that have less quote unquote tolerance for alcohol, you know, native Americans, their bodies don't process it the same way and it becomes like a, like it's a devastating poison. But you know, two Irishmen, <laughs> why is one an alcoholic and one's right. not? Right. And so I have that, whatever that is, I have that. It's a problem. That's not just that my body doesn't process alcohol because frankly, my body processes the fuck out of alcohol. Yeah, Like I can drink or was able to drink an incredible amount of alcohol and not pass out, not throw up. Like, you know, I was one of those people that was like doing those, those games like in Indiana Jones, where it's a, like a contest of how many shots you can do in some Tibetan, you know, like fire cave. Right. So it's not that it's that. There's that before I even had a drink, there was this thing already in me and I've never addressed it. I've never addressed it directly. I've addressed it my whole life because I'm always trying. And that's why I take bipolar medicine now. And that's why I read and think the idea of directly saying like, okay, what's your fucking meditation program or what's your, what's your spiritual, God damn it. I can't even say the words. I see the, I see the shelf of books at the Barnes and Noble under the heading recovery 
slash self care or whatever, and I just I just want to pour gasoline on it. But there's not another way. It's not exercise. I read a I read a thing on Facebook the other day that was like, we're not going to pres- we're we're going to start prescribing exercise for mental illness rather than drugs as a first line of defense. And there was a there was a part of me that was like, huh? And there was a part of me that was like, fuck you. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried it? Like, you know, exercise, exercise in, in, in a consistent, regular way for a period of time. And to see if that is something that would be worth you doing. It absolutely is. I was thinking the other day, what are the times in recent history where I was in a state where I was not plagued? And all three of them were, were sports moments. There's a, there was a, I was at Whistler and a couple of years ago or a year ago, I guess. And you know, Whistler Blackcomb is this enormous ski mountain. It stretches for miles in every direction. It's a place that if you lived at Whistler Blackcomb and skied it every day, for a decade every day the season was open you could still not fully know those mountains they're just enormous and there are runs in every direction and even if you knew all the runs every single day on a ski mountain conditions change so you can know all the runs and then come back a week later and all the runs are different you know (laughs) you knew them all a week ago but you don't know know them all now because because they're mountains, like conditions change. These slopes on an icy day and these slopes on a powder day are completely different environments, different planets. And I don't know Whistler Blackcomb worth a hole in my head. You know, I, I, I barely understand the layout. I've been there a handful of times. And so, so you get a thing when you're skiing a mountain where, you know, every few minutes – you kind of have to make a choice. You come to the end of a run and you can go left or you can go right or you can go straight. And every one of those choices changes the rest of your day. It changes your life. And it's rare that every that you can have every two or three minutes a choice where it's going to affect it's going to immediately affect your experience, but also like you, the whole rest of your day is is changed just by going left or right. It's like, I guess, going for a drive in a place that you don't know and just every stop sign you come to having having no plan. But just like, I guess this stop sign, I turn right. This stop sign, I turn left. It's a, it's a weird thing that that's true of skiing. And, but each of those choices, especially if you're like, I'm on a new mountain and I'm having a ski day, you know, you kind of want to find the best place or you want to find the cool places and you don't want to end up being routed to some access road or, um, or to some place where the skiing's bad. Anyway, there, it, it ends up being a, either fun or also it can be kind of a drag because you spend all day trying to find 
stuff and you never are, you never just be. So I was at Whistler and I was taking the lifts. I was going as high as I could. I was like, all right, let's take the lifts all the way up. And I got up to the top of the mountain and there was a lift that went all the way up to the top, but it was a pretty short lift. And it was obvious that most of the people taking the lift were only using it to get up to the top. And once they were at the top, they were taking their skis off and they were hiking up over the top of the mountain to get down to some other bowl or hiking over, doing some traverse to get to some run that you can only get to if you all the way up at the top. We would like to say thanks very much to Brooke Lennon. Brooke Lennon. I just, I'm listen, I'm going to go off script here. And I'm going to talk to you just from the heart about Brooke Lennon. I love these sheets. I just, every week, I change the sheets on the bed and Brooke Linen is the best set of sheets that I have ever owned in my life. They're very comfortable. They're very, they just feel, you take them out of the dryer and they, I don't know what it is about them. Just, they feel really nice. They feel fresh. They're awesome. I don't know why sheets can make that much of a difference, but they really do. I feel like I sleep better on these sheets and I did on other sheets and you know, like you spend like a third of your life on your sheets. Wouldn't you want them to be the best they can be? You want them to look nice, but more importantly, you want them to feel really good. And Brooklyn has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. They're really, really great. That's the thing. These sheets are really nice. So this company was started in uh, in early 2014 by a husband and wife. They wanted to, have beautiful home essentials, not just sheets that didn't cost an arm and a leg. They want to make us more comfortable in our homes. And that's what they did. Their concept was luxury products without the luxury markup. So they have originally started with sheets. Now they've moved beyond that. Essentials, including bathroom towels, shower curtains, bath mats. They even have ultra soft loungewear that makes you feel like you haven't even gotten out of bed. It's awesome. And I would love for you all to try this. I think you're going to like them as much as I do. If you like soft, comfortable sheets and essentials to help you relax, Brooklinen has it all. The URL to go to is brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. That's where you're going to go to see all these different products that they have. Start with the sheets, but don't forget they've got comforters. They've got loungewear, they've got towels, and they all come with a lifetime warranty and you're going to get 10% off your first order and free shipping on the new sheet when you use your promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. One word, ROADWORK. Go check it out. Get 10% off your first order and the free shipping. How can you beat that? You can't. And uh, also, oh, if you're in New York, you can get these sheets, the internet's favorite sheets, and more in real life you visit Brooklinen's first store, which is in Brooklyn at 127 Kent Avenue in Williamsburg. So go check that out. And for the rest of us, we're just going to go to brooklinen.com, use the promo code ROADWORK I told you about. And uh, thanks very much to Brooklinen for making this show possible. So this lift take you, takes you all the way up. And I got to the top and I was like, I don't want to hike to some faraway bowl. Like, give me a break. Half the time skiers do that and they're just doing it. It's not like the skiing's any better over there. They're just doing it to do it. But this lift was on a was on a ski run that was very much like the ones that I grew up 
skiing. It was really perfectly groomed. It was very steep. It was way, way up on the top of the mountain. So the air is thin. The, the sky is clear. It's cold. The wind is blowing. But you've got this, you've got this steep, flat ski slope. And no one was skiing it because it's not what people like. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's not what people, people are looking for nirvana. And this isn't that. This is just a steep, flat hill. And it's the kind of scheme I love. I got to the top of this lift and I was like, I'm not following you people up your golden staircase. I'm going to go ski this little s- slope. And I set myself into this set of S turns where I was skiing, I was completely using the entire hill. I I went all the way over to the very edge and then set this giant carving, sweeping, fast turn all the way across the hill where, where I was in the turn all the way to the point that I transferred my weight, you know, set up for a second turn was only flat on my skis for a second, hauling ass before I set into my next turn, which was a giant sweeping parabola all the way back across the hill, just going going so fast that I'm right at the edge of, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely in control, but it's like one mistake and I will be, I will be a tumbling, like, yard sale garbage pile. I will come to rest in the trees. You know what I mean? Like, if I fall, if I screw up at all, I will fall and fall and fall. I mean, you know, I will be, I will be seriously damaged. It would not be good. It would not be good at my (laughs) age now. But I'm in control, you know, I'm, I am on this side of that, not on the other side. And I made this run and I got to the bottom and I was just completely out of breath and completely, but like so present. And I got on the lift and went back up to the top of this thing and I skied this one run and I was the only freaking person on the hill and the ski lift is full of people. So I'm skiing under this lift and, you know, there's a, there's an element of skiing that's also like a dance, right? You're like mm-hmm. you want, you want people to see you ski if you're, if you're skiing, if you feel like you're skiing beautifully. And so I had this audience of strangers and a hill all to myself. There was nothing else to look at. They all, all they could look at was me. And when I was riding the lift, I could look down and I could see the, I could see my turns. You know, I could see where I had cut a, like a, I had carved a divot a foot deep in this like really well-groomed snow. And I did that for an entire afternoon until I was wiped out. And during that whole time, I was completely free mm-hmm. of any hurt. Like I had no pain. I I had a lot of physical pain because it was super hard what I was doing. And Mm -hmm. I felt like the entire time I was always one second from 
you know, needing to be airlifted <laughs> if, if, if one thing had gone wrong. Right. But like, this is what I ski for. It's the whole reason that I, it was the thing that I loved to do when I was young. It's called, it's what we would call like super G turns, um, where you're just, you're basically just doing a super G, except I was, you know, I was doing it so that my use of the slope was perfectly economical like i went right to the edges and i didn't and i kept i kept my speed right where i wanted it by maximizing the the slope it was everything i like and i was it it was exercise that where i was perfectly in in balance, you know, mm-hmm. it was like being on a crew team or something, except by yourself. And there, there have been a couple of those. The last year with the snorkeling, earlier this year when I was down in my ravine of my new house and clearing brush, same thing, clearing brush. I, I'm just in, I'm in a place where the, the exercise, the action, becomes mechanical Mm -hmm. but in the best the nicest possible way right but to do that as a to do that on a stationary bike in a ymca i don't know how to do that i don't know how to do that regularly and not feel like an asshole and i and i but i know it's there you know dan i know that it's I know all these things. I, I have the Rolodex full of three by five cards that friends have made me over the years about what I need to do. And it just has a little sign on it. That's like to do to do later tomorrow. <laughs> 